Welcome to Give and Take, where yours truly, Scott Jones, interviews artists, activists, authors, and a wide array of other thought leaders that help make our world the interesting place it is. My guest today is Dan Savage. In addition to being a nationally syndicated sex advice columnist and renowned author, he is also one of the most successful podcasters in the country, or I guess the world. Dan is a conversationalist, conversationalist, and I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. It's my pleasure to give you Dan Savage. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, I have so many questions for you. I started reading your column like when I was, I think, just out of high school, and like I would read it in like the Philly um, weekly kind of free papers, and you opened my mind to things that in my small South Jersey town I didn't know um, existed. <laughs> <laughs> and hadn't thought to Google. Yeah, right. And there was no Google at that point. Like, uh, it was, uh, yeah. You know, I could have had Scott Jones at gmail.com, and I thought, that's never going to take off. <laughs> I'll stay with my Hotmail account. Thank you, uh, MSN. Dan, like, so you are, uh, our mutual friend Mark Oppenheimer it makes this point in his ebook about you that he, he kind of calls you our first publicly gay celebrity in the sense of people like Elton John or George Michael. And there's lots of gay celebrities, but that weren't um, out their whole public life. But you kind of started out. Is that a, a different dynamic? I mean, how is that? affected your development as a advice columnist, a radio personality, and just a public figure? I might have to reject the premise. I just don't feel that I'm a celebrity in the uh, George Michael, Elton John stratosphere. I wish I had their money. Um, <laughs> and I could stay in rooms this big all the time. Uh, but, you know, it wasn't... Now I get accused by some, like, young radical queers of having... Uh, monetized queer identity and my gay identity. And this was a strategy I employed, you know, in 1991 when I started writing my column. Um, and, and it's not true. Just like I was out. And when Savage Love started, the idea was I would give advice to straight people uh, using the same sort of, you know, with the same contempt and revulsion that heterosexual advice columnists had always employed when talking to gay people about gay relationships and gay sex that they're wrong and it's icky and gross, but if you're going to do the sick and terrible twisted thing, here's some advice. Um, and it was just a joke. It wasn't what I, I didn't want to be a writer when I grew up. Um, I kind of still don't want to be a writer when I grow up writing. Songs. What, do, what, do, what do you want to be? Um, I wanted to direct goofy fun plays. Uh, I, you know, moved to Seattle, Washington to help start the stranger and the stranger and my column took off from there. And I started a theater there. And for years I did plays that uh, I am told and I would like to believe, but who knows, uh, that if I'd done them in New York, I would have the theater career I always wanted. But doing, you know, plays in Seattle is like making pancakes under the oak, you know, bottom of a lake. Uh, doesn't matter much. The theater scene is that bad there? Um, yeah, and the audience, it's not like Chicago, which is wired into New York uh, professionally and only, you know, a 90-minute flight away for, for critics and uh, theater people. Uh, so there's a lot of cross-pollinization, a lot of career-making that can go on in a city like Chicago. Not true for Seattle, the other end of the You wanted to be a priest for a little while, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, I did. I, my parents were evangelical Catholics. My dad was in the first class of the Catholic diaconate. Deacons were, you know, uh, pre, you know novice priests. Um, what are they called? Junior nuns? 
novitiates or something. Oh, oh novitiates, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And a deacon was to uh, priesthood what a novitiate was to becoming a nun. Um, you were a deacon for a year and then a, a priest. So to address the priest shortage in the 70s, uh, it's only gotten worse since then, the Catholic Church created the permanent diaconate. My dad was uh, in the first class of the permanent diaconate. And I believed, and I, you know, was a weird little baggy kid and read the Bible cover to cover a few times and because um, <laughs> uh, I had nothing else to do. Uh, and went to a seminary and thought about being a priest. And then it was really my sexuality, my the realization that I was gay that, you know, began, it was the thread I began to pull that unraveled the garment of uh, faith for me. Um, it wasn't that I went, oh, they're wrong about gayness, um, but they're right about everything else, which some gay Christians do. Uh, they're, you know, what I'm being told by my faith community, faith leaders, faith tradition about me is wrong, but I'm not going to look at everything else they're saying about everything else. I'm just going to assume they're right about all of that stuff. It doesn't touch me personally. Um, and I had the opposite reaction. Uh, I thought, well, they're wrong about me. Wonder what else they're bullshitting about. Wonder what else they're wrong about. And I'd had my doubts going back, uh, you know, to fourth grade. Uh, I'm from a sort of Catholic. What did the fourth grade doubts look like? Uh, well, I just say I'm from a Catholic cultural experience that doesn't exist for a lot of, I, I think, white folks in America anymore. Grew up in a multi generational household, uh, an apartment owned by my great grandparents, where my grandparents lived, and my parents lived, and we lived, and my aunts and uncles all lived. Uh, and I went to the same grade school that my mom went to and my grandma went to uh, up the street, St. Ignatius. And I had the same nun in fourth grade that my mother had and my grandmother had, Sister uh, Mary Amadeus. And uh, I just remember being in you know, religion classes, Mary Amadeus, and getting in trouble and her complaining to my mom and my grandma. Or I think my grandma was dead by then, certainly complaining to my mother. Because I just couldn't wrap my head around uh, Jewish babies who died in the Holocaust were in hell. Uh, and Jewish adults who were tortured to death in the Holocaust were in hell. And Hitler, if he'd managed to say a good confession and a sincere confession and have his sins absolved uh, before death, could have been in heaven if he didn't kill himself. That would have been a deal breaker. But that he was a vegetarian. That used Jesus, to that, that Hitler's in heaven, and Gandhi and Martin Luther King, because he's not Catholic, um, and little Jewish children murdered in the Holocaust. Uh, sorry, technicality, hell for you. Your parents picked wrong. You guessed wrong. Wrong religion. Uh, and so off to hell with you. And that was, um, those are the doubts I was having. You know, the moral imagination of a child. Like, children are obsessed with what's fair. Um, and insisting on fairness because uh, children don't have a lot of power. And the unfairness of all of that was just so uh, apparent and galling to me in fourth grade. And probably younger. Uh, that then when I sort of revisited my doubts, uh you know, at 13, 14, when I was in the seminary, uh, it all came tumbling down. You were like religious PhD, like temperament. I mean, like, well, 13 or 14 when I was in the seminary and I moved on and came to universal consciousness. <laughs> do, you, do you like levitate now? Like, no, I don't. I don't levitate now. Uh, I wish I could say I was an atheist. Um, I'm sort of, uh, I'm suspicious of people who pretend to know that which they do not know or cannot know. Um, so I don't like uh, not that I don't like personally, but I don't um, approve of uh, anybody who claims to have knowledge and then slaps the faith label on it to justify it or immunize it from criticism. I mean, that, that applies too to people who, who say definitively that there is no God, because I don't think that's something that is yet knowable. I suspect we will discover, uh, if we don't destroy ourselves and the planet, uh, 
in the interim, we will eventually discover and we will know. And every other time we've come to know something, every other, as Tim Minchin says in his terrific song Storm, um, every mystery has, that has ever been solved, the answer was not magic. And so this mystery of existence, this mystery of whether or not there is a higher power, when the universe begins, when it ends, in what it sits, uh, what was before, what comes after. Um, if we're around long enough to tease that all out, uh, as with all other mysteries, the answer is most likely not going to be uh, we have a magic sky friend who thought it all up. Hmm. Do you feel like you're a priest now, though, in some sense? Because, I mean, listening to your podcast, it is like a confessional. And I mean that. <laughs> I mean that in the best sense of the word. I feel like the Catholic Church has tried to push the sacrament of reconciliation, like bring it back. And I feel like if the confessional was more like your podcast, they would not be able to keep people out of it. <laughs> well, you're as likely to get uh, absolution as you are penance in my confessional booth. Uh, you're also likely to get permission. Uh, which I don't think you get in a lot of confessional booths uh, staffed by Catholic priests. Um, this Actually, this Lutheran minister wrote a sort of a think piece on me um, for Washington Monthly uh, a few years ago, where he credited me with saving more marriages than uh, than the pastor of a major church could possibly save in a, in a lifetime uh, in his whole career, because I encourage people uh, to accept their partner's flaws and to indulge their partner's uh, idiosync. Um, and that an affair is something common and that you can get past and many couples do and that forgiveness uh, is something that you extend to someone who's wounded you uh, in a in a profound way Uh, and you know I say to married people I hear you telling me you know five minutes ago that you would take a bullet for this person you would walk through fire for this person and then a split second later you're telling me you couldn't possibly forgive this person and how do you reconcile that Mm. some people say if it's an affair you know i would take a bullet for this person if the you know your spouse has an affair you didn't take a bullet they they shot you (laughs) the person who put that bullet in you is your spouse Uh, but still uh i make the same point um but sometimes you know for and i'm you know in a 23 issue your relationship marriage myself i know from personal experience that they don't go they don't survive um without uh indulgence and working around people's insecurities and insanities and also uh extending forgiveness when it when it really cuts a piece out of you and knowing that the same will be done for you in turn or already has been done for you Hmm. yeah when i if i had to use one word to describe your podcast i think it would be wisdom <laughs> that's nice of you to say. <laughs> uh, it's true. I mean, because that's different than knowledge, right? I mean, you can have a lot of knowledge and not know how to use it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I think of wisdom as kind of practical um, virtue, like on the ground. And I think, yeah, I mean, that's so. so I, like, I perceive you. I don't know you. Um, I, I I'm a big fan. This is my wife. Um, uh, it's funny because in reading our friend Mark's ebook about you, he said Which that you I have talked read. a lot. You should read it. It's so complimentary. I mean, oh, okay. Is, well, I can't so take compliments. I'm a Catholic. I mean, well, yeah, don't read it then. Don't read it. Um, Curl up in the fetal position on the floor if I tried to read it. But he said that, like, this is the only uh, subject of uh, uh, a conversation and writing that his wife was jealous of. <laughs> like, the, I, I want to – and I think my wife probably feels a little bit that way. Like she's dying to hear this. Um, but you strike me as – and I mean this, like, in the best sense um, – a conservative small C person. Um, oh, absolutely. Like we, don't, 
we don't have that in public life anymore. Like you, you're an advocate of institutions and stability and the kind of ligaments, like it's, it's society. I get attacked like, the all the time. Li- oh, sorry. Go ahead. The, the whole together public life. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, social conservatives, religious conservatives often attack me because I seem like a libertine, libertine, however you pronounce that word. Um, and I find that ironic because if you dump all of my advice and all my columns and podcasts into a pot and boil it down to its essence, you're left with do unto others as you would have them do unto you. There's just more that can be done unto someone in my universe and done unto someone ethically and conventionally in my universe than in a lot of uh, you know the conservative Christian universe. But so much of the advice I give around relationships is about preserving and, and sustaining and accepting uh the imperfect relationship you're in and making accommodations and again, extending forgiveness um, to, to grease the machinery of that relationship and keep it going um, and to continue to find joy. And, and, you know, I think that we place too, I think the emphasis we place on monogamy and I get attacked uh, for talking about monogamy the way I do destabilizes relationships. Um, you know, we overemphasize its importance, particularly in a multi-decade relationship. Uh, and that undermines relationships. It makes relationships and marriages likelier to fail because we tell people that only monogamy, and I'm going to go off on my monogamy rant for a second if that's okay. Um, you can rant. Go, please, go. Monogamy is the one thing that humans do that they are lousy at if they screw up at it once. You can be the world's greatest snowboarder and fall down and get up and still be the world's greatest snowboarder. Uh, and you can be a world-renowned chef and burn a fucking omelet once or twice and still be a world-renowned chef. Um, if you are in a monogamous relationship for 50 years and you had one affair, you were terrible at monogamy. You were no good at it. And your marriage was a lie. And you never loved that person um, mm. that you were married to. And that is an impossible standard, uh, particularly when we weigh it against uh, the data on infidelity that shows that now there's parity. It used to be that men cheated at a much higher rate than women. Um, and that wasn't because women were essentially more monogamous or more faithful or less sexual. It was that women were more uh, fearful because it, co- it cost them more. It cost them more. You know, yeah. the consequences of divorce, uh, financial consequences uh, fell more heavily on women's shoulders, particularly when women weren't in the workforce. And now that women have a rough kind of, uh, Equality. They're not. Uh, they're not being paid the same that men are, but they're not as dependent on men as they were. Men and women are now as likely to cheat. Men and women under forty as likely to cheat uh, in a committed relationship as each other. So, what, and what we know is like roughly half. Half of all men, half of all women in a long-term committed relationship uh, cheat. And these stats are a little fuzzy because uh, people aren't necessarily always honest about uh, questions about infidelity with strangers on the phone. Um, yeah, it's like when they ask you, are you going to vote for Donald Trump? <laughs> yeah, oh, of right. course I'm not. <laughs> or Marine Le Pen. <laughs> yeah. And so so what we know is that you know those 50% of women and 50% of men who cheat aren't all married to each other, the cheaters. So we know that just about every long-term relationship, just about every marriage is going to be touched by infidelity. It's like being touched by a bad angel, touched by infidelity. And <laughs> if we tell That's people... That's a sitcom waiting to be written. Yeah, right. If we tell people that cheating... Uh, means they never loved you, couldn't love you, that you have to leave. It's a relationship extinction level event. People will react to it that way. And so we send people off into marriages with these unrealistic expectations about what love and commitment mean uh, and what infidelity might mean. And then those relationships collapse. And I'm there saying, you don't have to get divorced. 
because somebody cheated, that this is something you should be able to forgive and get past. Many, many people do. Many couples do, and they don't tell anybody because they don't want to be, you know, the person who cheated on doesn't want to be further humiliated or the person who cheated doesn't want to be known as a cad uh, or a, you know, slatternly women, woman. And, and so, you know, there's a lot of couples that we know who have worked past and forgiven and, and are now in a better place who got through an infidelity, but we don't know, we don't know we know them because they're not out about it. Um, but that's what we should be. And that's what I get attacked for, like, uh, putting too much importance on sex when I'm saying sex, if it happens outside the relationship, shouldn't end the relationship. You shouldn't place that much importance on sex. That I'm attacking marriage and the family by saying that this thing that leads to the dissolution of so many marriages and the breakup of so many families is something that we should no longer, uh, that we should stop uh, placing so much emphasis on that it destroys families and leads to divorce as often as it does. You know, people should head off into marriage with some being realistic about the odds that they will be cheated on. I think there should be a couples counseling before people get married that says you one or the other of you or both are going to cheat. What happens then? That doesn't mean you have a license to cheat. That doesn't mean cheating is okay. But if this thing happens, how are you two going to talk about it? And what do you, what do you like at this vantage point? Now you're madly in love and you're about to get married. What would you hope that you two did then 18 years in, if this should happen or 10 years Mm. in what then? And if you can get people before marriage to say, we will try to work through it. We will try to remember who we were to each other now, uh, at that point and try to reconnect and we will try to, it doesn't mean you can forgive. Um, but we will try. And then to encourage people to judge an infidelity on its particulars. You know, if he slept with your sister on your wedding night, probably not something you could get past if you found that out (laughs) uh, three months later. But if 25 years into a marriage where, you know, the sexual connection isn't what the marriage is entirely about anymore, it's about family and kids and commitment and history. And, you know, your wife slept with her personal trainer or your husband did something he shouldn't on a business trip. Maybe that's something that you could forgive and get past. Maybe that's something that shouldn't require you to divorce and tear the home apart and disrupt the lives of your children and rip the two extended families that you've knit together into. Maybe that's something you could suck up and forgive. Have you ever done like premarital counseling? No, I mean, but I, I think I, mean, I should. <laughs> yeah, I think you'd be great at it. Well, I, I mean, think I, I do be... kind of in my, on my podcast, you know, a lot of young people listen to me and I think they're hopefully carrying these thoughts with them as they, uh, make, commitments as they get into serious long-term relationships. So is it now it's Isadora Alman tried to knife you uh, early on in your career <laughs> and she called you like the kind of like you were, she said that you were Howard Stern like which which to me I mean gosh there's no higher compliment but yeah I um, would have settled for being the queen of all media he can still be yeah, king right. I'll be queen. have you ever done his show no never I've never been asked I'm going to I'm going to tweet everywhere Howard please <laughs> have to answer. But it's interesting. I bet, you know Howard Stern sort of has the same kind of vibe like celebrities he says that with he and his wife like celebrities meet him and they think oh my gosh he's going to be so outrageous and they're like Warden June Cleaver and he's this kind of like <laughs> Yeah, he, him and his second wife are. Right, he used, second he, wife. He right, used to right, say that about wife. his relationship with his first wife and then the wheels came off that which yeah. is fine. I'm I'm not from the school of if a relationship ends uh, you know, everything I just said, notwithstanding about how we should try to like keep it together. And I think stability is important and constancy is important and our virtues that are under emphasized. You know, I do think that two people can get out of a relationship and be able to look back on it and have it be a success. Um, the only metric we use for success within relationships is somebody's dead. 
that death parted them and nothing else. Um, <laughs> so two people together 50 years and they hated each other and they were neglectful and contemptuous of each other. Maybe there was emotional violence. Maybe there's physical violence. But they were together 50 years and one of them died and people were like, oh, how beautiful. What a beautiful love story. People were together for 15 years or 10 years and then they part and maybe they're estranged for a little while and they circle back and they can be friends or good co-parents together and they're always kind of there for each other. Um, why can't they look back on that relationship also as a success, even if they both got out of it alive? How, how do you hold intention? You, you're a deeply moral person and that just comes out in everything you write and in your podcast. And yet you're not a very judgmental person. Like I mean, well, no. You I judge mean, things on the, you judge things on the you know the moral scale of, of who is being harmed here, which is what I said to myself when I realized I was gay at thirteen, fourteen. I was told it was like mortal sin, this terrible thing, what Jesus hates most. And I was just like, this is what Jesus hates most—that I want to kiss a boy, a boy who wants to kiss me back. Who is harmed in, in that moment? Um, it, I, I just couldn't wrap my head around it. So, you know, if two people want to pee on each other, who's harmed? Like that, that just creates more to... joy in the world if that gives those two people who are peeing on each other joy. And who are we to stand in the way of that? And what we know about human sexuality is that variance is the norm and that we are a kink-creating species, that our erotic imaginations um, are sort of lodged in the same part of our brain as our capacity for abstract thought and for speech. And there's something randomizing about our erotic imaginations that just seizes on things that make no sense to anyone but our erotic imaginations and to us. And to stigmatize those things or make people feel shame about those things when they can be expressed and enjoyed uh, in a way that's consensual and a way that uh, cements partner bonds or throuple bonds or whatever kind of bonds you want to talk about. Um, and whether that partner bond is a bond for an evening, a weekend, uh, a year or two, a lifetime, um, that it can cement that bond. You know, that's what human sexuality is for. We're social animals and, and sex is a lot of what makes our social thing go. Uh, why don't we go into heat? Why don't women go into heat like cats and deer? Uh, why hidden menses? Why hidden ovulation? It's because sex and for our species uh, evolved with some other purpose. You know, we have a lot of sex and very few children. Even the Santorum, seven kids, right? Um, or eight. I'm sure they have more sex than they had children. And what was sex doing for them when they weren't doing it to have children? It was comfort, intimacy, bonding. Uh, the things that sex does for queer people, too, for gay people, too, for lesbians, too, Uh Sex plays the exact same role in our lives that it plays in the lives of heterosexuals, except once or twice. <laughs> Speaking of peeing on people, do you think Vladimir has a pee-pee tape? I hope Vladimir has a pee-pee tape, and I hope it comes out, and I hope it comes out <laughs> soon. I mean, that's like saying kind of hope that the Russian president, uh, who's the enemy of uh, our democracy and our values, steps in to save our democracy. Um, but... Yeah, compromat is a real thing, and bugged hotel rooms in, uh, across the street from the Kremlin are a real thing, and it wouldn't <laughs> surprise me at all. And people always point to Trump's germophobia as evidence that he couldn't possibly be into something so uh, theoretically germy as pee, although urine is uh, mostly sterile, uh, you know, more sterile than saliva. Uh, and people will say, oh, he's a germaphobe. He couldn't possibly be into this. But people are often, the stuff that arouses them is often uh, a polar opposite to their uh, other conceptions or presentations of themselves. So it wouldn't surprise me at all that a germaphobe was uh, into watching people pee or getting peed on himself. You strike me 
as not just a traditionalist in some on some ways, but also a patriot. Like, I mean, you love America. Like, I've seen you on Bill Maher's show. I love multi-culti, multi-ethnic, uh, can't we all just get along America? Yeah, yeah, but I mean that, you, but you love that. I mean, there's a sense in which... I do, uh, and you know, I've lived abroad uh, and seen, and, you know, I lived in Germany for a while uh, and, and been and visited countries where uh, nationality was determined uh, in the minds of most citizens by race uh, or ethnicity or religion, and those are places that are not as stable, um, not as good to be uh, a minority in, where you're more marginalized. You look at the how integrated uh, American Muslims are into American life here compared to French Muslims, um, uh, and that's the genius of America: that citizenship is an idea and a fealty to to a set of principles, and not a birthright, not um, not about race and not about religion or ethnicity, despite the best efforts of white nationalists to tear up the constitution and, and rewrite it. When you were in Germany, didn't you have a boyfriend that thought you were Jewish? <laughs> I did. <laughs> yeah, he was very disappointed. Um, he didn't speak much English. I didn't speak uh, much German, but we understood each other. Uh, <laughs> and my German was getting a little better. And I heard him say to some friends when he introduced me uh, in, ba- in broken English to his friends uh, that I was his, you know, meine Juden boyfriend i can't remember the word and i looked at him and went wait you think i'm jewish <laughs> i have a big nose i'm circumcised uh, i had i had black hair then it's all gray now um and i spent a lot of time well, in the sun. You, you look good with salt and pepper thank you i spent a lot of time in the sun and had sort of olive complexion skin and he thought he just assumed that i was jewish and not only uh, did he think i was jewish he was really turned on by the thought that i was jewish so he was crushed to learn that i was a catholic like uh bavarian him was that like holocaust guilt kink Kind of, yeah. It, it was a kind of bank shot, uh, eroticized reparation. <laughs> so, uh, are you friends with Andrew Sullivan? Yeah. Like, uh, do you guys talk politics? You talk. What do you I, like? Yeah, I, we that, always like, argue about politics, and we've been arguing about politics for the twenty plus years that I've known him. Why don't you guys just do a road show? Like, I feel like so many people <laughs> would go to that. Because a lot of just sound a stage. A lot of people think Andrew and I are the same on a lot of issues, and we're not. There are issues that we disagree on. There are issues I'm glad to say that he's come around to my side on, like he's for national health care, and he votes for Democrats for president, things he didn't do when we first got to be friendly. Um, I'm not taking credit. Uh, I think Andrew came to those positions because he's rational and uh, movable um, and always thinking. Uh, but you know, we did a we did an event together at the New York Public Library where you know he interviewed me when my book American Savage came out. So anyone who wants to see the two of us uh, argue and, and and bicker and agree on the things that we agree on can uh, Google that. It pops <laughs> right up on YouTube. So um, I love karaoke. It's one of the things I love the most. I mean, I I love it. It's a weird thing, but I love it. And. We went to a legendary gay bar in Greater Philly. My wife and I, uh, the Raven. It's in New Hope, Pennsylvania, because they have the best karaoke. Uh, it's hosted by this drag queen. It's amazing. And um, as we we're driving home, my wife said, "I read about this gay, or she heard on the radio or something about this gay retirement village, where they have like it's somewhere in like North Carolina, and they have like cabaret shows and all these fascinating things." She's like, "Why can't we go there when we get old?" And I was like. <laughs> I was like, maybe we could just say we're a queer couple and like we could get in. We could both claim to be bi because you're going to ruin it for us. You know, one of the things that 
you know, there, I'm glad there's that retirement community. One of the issues that the gay community is talking about and facing is that so many gay and lesbian elders, the Stonewall generation older, are being forced back into the closet as they go into nursing homes. Um, a lot of nursing homes are run by religious organizations. A lot of nursing homes are staffed by people who aren't particularly sensitive to or uh, approving of gay people existing. Uh, so I'm glad that nursing home exists. We need a lot more of them. Uh, and we should leave slots in them open for the for gay people so that fewer gay people wind up in nursing homes where they're being shoved back into the closet or subjected to anti-gay violence. My wife and I want to go to the gay retirement home. That, that sounds way more fun. But right? then you're taking this, a slot. Exactly. I can't take the slot. You're you right. know, I, I actually think that observation, is, I'm always encouraging straight people to go to the gay pride parade. I don't necessarily want to go myself anymore, but I think straight people should all go. And I think that straight people have been going and paying attention enough over the last four decades uh, for something to have stuck. Because what straight people see when they go to a gay pride parade isn't just like, wow, so much fun. Uh, what straight people see is that, look at this, there are so many different ways to be gay or queer. There's the Dykes on Bikes and there's the Gay Leatherman's group and there's the gay Christian organization and the gay dads and the lesbian moms and the bisexual group and the Catholic group and the Christian group and the auto sale group and um, all these different, you know, the gay chorus guys and the gay boys, twinks and speedos on flatbed trucks dancing to horrible house music. Uh, there's so many different ways to be queer that straight people come away, I think, from gay pride often wondering why there is just one way to be straight. Why there can't be as many yeah. ways to be straight as there are to be queer. It's the 500th anniversary of the Re Protestant Reformation. And the best explanation I ever heard of it was by an Episcopal rector named Paul Zoll. And he said that, that basically these were young guys who realized that their religious, cultural, political system would not let them be themselves. They were they, they had a lot of inner feelings that needed to come out. Mm -hmm. And Luther opened the floodgate, and they could be and they could reconcile um, the inner tensions. And there was, do you think there's something like that when straight people go? It's like, okay, everybody in some way feels repressed, mm -hmm. right? Like like for some in their family story or their work environment or something. And is it part of the gay pride? I think it's like this is what we had to do. Um, to be expressive. And then is, it's, is, there, is there a little Miss Sunshine factor that everybody would like deep down to not feel repressed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and gay people are, you've given yourself permission to be gay in the first place. After, I always like to say, after you look your mother in the eye and tell her you put dicks in your mouth, there's nothing you won't say. There's nothing <laughs> that seems scary. You know, a lot of my job as a guy who writes a sex advice column, primarily for straight people, is patting straight people on the head and saying, that's okay, you can do that. Why don't you do that? Why let go of the shame and just enjoy that and roll with it? Um, you know, You're like a little league coach for straight people. Okay, you yeah, get hit by the bit. pitch, now um, get back up to bat. And straight like, people need to hear that, uh, yeah. and they can't tell that to themselves because straight people don't have that experience of you know looking your parents in the eyes when you're a teenager and telling them this thing about who you are sexually that's really kind of a baseline thing, like who your partners are going to be, you know, what gender they're going to be. Um, that's very difficult to say and that parents don't want to hear and is very stigmatized and implicating. Uh, and so, you know, if you've told your mother you're a cocksucker, telling your boyfriend you want to dance on the truck at Pride and the Speedo or that you want to be peed on or uh, all the rest of it, the kinks and the, like, passions seem not scary. And a lot of those things for straight people are very scary. 
because straight people don't have to look their moms in the eyes and break their hearts when they're 15 years old by coming out as straight. Because although, although there's something every person wants, that, there's something in every person that would break their mother's heart, whether it should or not. <laughs> probably you know, true. Like, That's probably yeah. really true. Yeah. My mother always said there are things a mother has a right not to know. Yeah. So some of those things that would break your parents' heart, maybe you can spare them. Maybe they don't need to know them. And sometimes it's the most loving thing you can do is run your parents on a need-to-know basis uh, while not closing them off or, or blocking them out. But, you know, you don't a relationship with a romantic partner or a parent is not a deposition. You don't have to fully disclose everything and you don't have to answer every goddamn question. Uh, you're not under oath. Uh, sometimes a little considerate editing uh, or withholding is the most loving thing that you can do. Hmm. You are a parent, and you and your spouse chose an open adoption, right? Mm-hmm. Why? Why? Because a lot of people choose closed adoptions. Why open? Well, we wanted him to be able to know his mother. Uh, we didn't want there to be a mystery. Uh, doing an open adoption meant that we were able to meet his mom before she gave birth. We were able to be at the hospital for the birth. Mm-hmm. And we did something that was profoundly scarring uh, in, in a good way. You know, people who are able to give birth, to, to get pregnant, carry to term, and give birth to a lot child. There's suffering, and there's pain, and there's blood, and there's tears. Um, and we, you know, adoptive parents, I think in a closed adoption, you know, you're very happy, and they come down the hall, and they hand you the baby that you've been praying for or, or hoping to, to, to have. And it's just a moment of kind of unalloyed joy, uh, usually at the end of a long period of, of mourning and grief around infertility, um, a lot of straight couples come to adoption from a very painful place. Mm. Um, but that moment of birth is often just celebratory and mm. frictionless even. And we had to go to a hospital and be there for the birth. And then two days after our son was born and it was time to leave the hospital, we had to take him out of his mother's arms, put him in the bassinet at the foot of the bed, mm. and then leave the it makes me cry even today, you know, almost 20 years later, leave the room, pick this kid up and walk out of the room while his mother uh, sobbed and was shattered uh, and just devastated. And we were devastated. We were uh, blinded by tears as we tried to get on an elevator. And, you know, we sat in a car, uh, the car we'd rented um, in Portland to go back to our hotel. We had to stay in Portland for a couple of days for the paper to be finalized. And we sat there in the car sobbing, unable to drive. And then we realized that she was going to check out too and come down to the same parking garage. And we didn't know where her car was. And we didn't, you know, we didn't want to run away or anything, but we didn't want to rip the scab off that the wound where, that hadn't even had a chance to scab over at all. Uh, and it was just the most harrowing, painful, searing experience. And that was something that bonded us to DJ's mom. And that was something that then when DJ was older, we were able to share with him. You know, a lot of adopted kids will have issues around feeling like they were disposed. They were, th- they were thrown away. They were disposed of their parents. Didn't biological parents didn't want them at their garbage. And we were able to say to our son, when he went through that, that's not true. And we know it's not true because we saw it with our own eyes because we were there. We were there at that moment where your mother did the most difficult and loving thing that she could possibly do for you, which was to recognize that she was incapable of, of parenting and it wasn't a lifestyle choice and it wasn't about convenience and it wasn't because you were garbage. There was nothing more that she wanted in that moment than to not do that adoption, but the adoption had to be done. Dan, I'm a, I'm adopted. Thank you. 
And you know what? If you're from a closed adoption, that moment happened. Yeah. That your adoptive parents weren't there to see it doesn't mean it didn't happen. It happened. Thank you. Can we talk sex now? Sure. <laughs> that's a, I'm sure that's my uh, therapist would tell me. About <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. So, uh, okay, so my wife, Lindy, is a nurse practitioner in urology. And her um, the doctor who runs the practice would... Um, not forgive me if I didn't say it's um, St. Mary's Comprehensive Urologic Specialists. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, in Gotta Langhorne, get that plug in. And exactly, in Langhorne, Pennsylvania. So right now it's, you... say, what is it? Right now it's that, it, it, later on it'll be me undies and Blue Apron. And... Yeah, exactly. You know, well, yeah, no, I, I don't get sponsors yet, but that's, but I would love Blue Apron, I would love me undies, I'd love. Um, so she found, she showed me this video where this, like celebrity entertainment old doctor was talking about male chastity devices uh-huh. and he's this old guy and he and he's with this young kind of hip sort of uh sea level ryan seacrest persona like all right let's think about this and he's like well what it, what it does i mean this is it's a it's it's a travesty it's a fetish it's an abomination i would never have it it it, it is it is so awful these things so let me ask you you've written about this and actually read something you wrote about this but for our listeners male chastity devices safe or not what what are they are they safe well they're perfectly safe um it's you know it, it they come in all sorts of different varieties and they're more extreme ones they're ones that are designed to be painful um you know they're aligned with spikes you know it's kind of imagine a you know a tube that you can put your cock in that is anchored to a ring that goes around your cock and your balls to hold that, that tube in place. Um, and it prevents you from getting an erection or enjoying an erection if you <laughs> do get one and it's just jammed in that tube. Um, and people wear them um, as a fetish, as a kink, to surrender control of their own dicks um, to the person who holds the key to that chastity device. Uh, and it's a kind of power play and, and, and submission. And there are people who engage in long-term chastity play. I personally know someone who wore one for a year and then took it off and his dick worked just fine. Uh, or so he told me I'm not privy to, I, I I'm, guess, I'm guessing he was dick. not doing much manscaping. If he uh, for a year. No, actually you can, because it's all sort of down at the shaft and, and the balls. So you still can trim away most of your pubes like, if, oh, if you wish. Okay. Um, okay. but that, you know, that desire to like, Oh, this is kinky, perverted, horrible, disgusting. Uh, okay. Well, that's how you... So don't put one on your dick. Obviously, it doesn't work for you. I feel the same way about cunnilingus. So, so I guess there shouldn't be cunnilingus because it seems kind of awful and perverse to me and, and not at all appealing. And I couldn't understand why anyone would ever want to do that. Therefore, no one should be allowed to do that. Uh, it, some people enjoy it very much. And, you know, I've actually... You know, I've gotten letters from straight couples who've said, you know, he jacks off too much and sex addiction and waka waka. Um, and then she feels cheated, even though they may be having plenty of sex. And I said to, I've said to more than one couple, get a male chastity device and make a sexy game out of not allowing them to masturbate instead of making a judgmental. Why aren't you being booked at mega churches? (laughs) Hey, Hey, everybody, you all think porn's this big of a problem. I'll, uh, you know, I have the 15 minute solution. You'd be huge. Yeah. Yeah. Like lock his cock up. Maybe uh, you and I could work on some kind of road show. <laughs> I can't imagine that the, many churches are going to bring me uh, to town. <laughs> you know what the other to talk plan. about putting the male parishioners' dicks in cages. <laughs> well, you never know. Along never with their psyches. Yeah. 
<laughs> you know the other business model I like. I, my wife and I have been to, like, there's a couple adult novelty stores we've been to in the greater Philly area. One is, like, in uh, sort of just outside of the city in the Northeast, and it's seedy. It's everything you fear in an adult shop. Like, people that, the guys that are, like, working there right next to a 7-Eleven, they're not hygienic. Everyone looks creepy. Then there's one we, a couple, when we go to a New Hope, which is so elegant and so wonderful, but we feel like it's too cool for school. Like, I don't want to ask this question. I don't really know. But there's this one in between those two locations that's like Target and it's like clean. Like a and, castle, the castle superstore sex toy. Emporium. Yeah, it's, it's clean. The people are knowledgeable, but not too knowledgeable. They're kind of like, it's, wait, why isn't there like a Target for adult novelties that well, like people can feel relaxed about? Th- there is, you know, there are those sort of like hyper PC and I love them and I've always recommended them. Hyper PC kind of women owned, uh, um, proselytizing evangelical sex toy shops. Yes, where when yes. you go in, the staff has to demonstrate to you how comfortable they are working there and how comfortable you should be shopping there and uh, maybe too aggressively answering your questions and um, just virtue signaling around their sex positivity, which can get exhausting. Um, and then there are the, the disgusting uh, shit show sex shops that are more about people having sex in the back, uh, closeted married straight guys. Uh, yes, yes. These are the, the these are the two stores you just described there without being in either of them. Yeah, well, that would, I would rather go to the store staffed by hipster lesbians and, and trans guys uh, who want to talk yes, with me, me about too. the vibrator me we're picking out than go to the place where I feel like I have to boil my shoes after I've walked through it. Um, the, but you don't have to go to either place because there is the internet and there's nothing you can get in a sex toy shop uh, that you can't get online. Um, I would encourage people to order through um, sex positive uh, sex toy shops like Smith and Kitten, like Toys and Babeland, uh, Good Vibrations, Come As You Are, all these places with great names um, uh, are also great stores where they make sure the stuff that they sell is body safe. There's a lot of garbage out there. Um, there are terrible chemicals, phylates that get used to make jelly dildos and all these things that you really don't want in your body. And people have you know, experienced chemical burns from deteriorating, uh, decomposing um, dildos made out of God knows what. It's not a regulated market. Uh, they don't have to list the ingredients on that dildo. So you want to make sure it's all silicone, 100% silicone, body safe, washable, sterilizable. Um, <laughs> and to have somebody explain that to you can save you a rash on your labia that could send you shamefacedly to your doctor trying to explain how you got this Terrible could send you, chemical could send burn you to, on your labia. It could send you to um, comprehensive urologic specialist. Exactly. <laughs> working another yeah. plug. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, but yeah Make yeah, sure yeah. it's a silicone uh, plug you're working in. Yeah. Uh, you know, my wife, uh, years ago, this is, I think, definitely before we dated, but maybe before we met, was with a gay friend at a bar somewhere in New York, I think. And, and he said to her, well, it's so great. To be straight with the easy, the good thing about being straight or something to this effect is like, you know who the top is. No, you don't. Not always. Yeah, I mean, don't. Do you feel like just the way we? That, think no, about, you know, that's the worst thing about being straight. You know what's great about being gay is that when two gay guys go to bed together for the first time, they have to keep talking. They don't know who the top is. That that has to mm. be discussed. The problem in, with straight sex is that the heterosexual couple knew getting going to have sex for the first time, whether they just met that night or they've been dating for a year and they're a dugger uh, and dad says it's okay now. <laughs> they get to that first sexual encounter and they get to consent and they stop communicating. 
because everything that happens after that when you're straight is presumed. There's this default setting around vaginal intercourse. That's what straight sex is. You're going to get to fuck her pussy or you're going to get his dick in your pussy. Um, Two gay guys go to bed together. They get get to yes. And it's never at the end of a year. It's always usually that first time that they've met. Um, And then that's the beginning of the whole conversation. Who's going to do what? Uh, you know, there's, I, I call them the four magic words that begin every gay sexual relationship. What are you into? Somebody asks, what are you into? And at that moment, um, both guys can rule anything in and anything out. And they're going to have a conversation about whether they're even going to have anal sex or it's just oral or mutual masturbation or there's, and that it also invites, uh, throwing kinks on the table. Um, it's very empowering that question. Uh, straight people don't ask each other that question when they have sex. They know who the top is, like your wife's gay friend said. But that harms straight people's sex lives because they don't they don't begin by communicating. And then they wait 10 years and they have to get a marital counselor after their sex lives have collapsed to begin communicating about what they want to rule in, what they want to rule out, what they're into. They don't talk about it because what they're Why into Why don't you just do relationship boot camp weekends? Like Bring straight people in. And for like, you work out, we talk. There's, and you just do like a boot camp weekend. I, I would love to. Would be... And mostly I'd love to do it for straight guys. Because one of the things I hear from my straight male friends is, oh, you're so lucky to be gay. You know, any straight guy who has gay friends eventually says to his gay friends, it's so great to be gay. You can get laid whenever you want. And I always look at them and say, most of the me getting laid that you're talking about, you would not even consider sex. Because I've heard mm-hmm. you say... When I've said, did you get laid this weekend? I've heard you say, no, I just got a blowjob. Like, <laughs> I think getting a blowjob is getting laid. In fact, I know it. Um, and one of the things you hear when you say to a guy, gay guy, you're going to bed the first time. One of the things you often hear when you say, what are you into? Is I'm not into anal. Imagine a straight guy going to bed with a straight woman. He asks, what are you into? And she says, yeah, I'm not into vaginal. His head would explode. Like, what do you mean? You're, then why are we here? Why did you say we were going to have sex? You're not into vaginal? I'm like, well, I'm into oral. I'm into mutual masturbation. I'm into fantasy play. I'm into rolling around. I'm into frottage. I'm into toys. I'm into all these other things that are also sex and, and are intimate and will get us both off. I just don't want to be penetrated. And gay guys can say that to each other. And straight women can't say that to straight men because penetration is straight sex. And so if straight guys <laughs> want to have more sex, if they want women to be likelier to say yes when asked, even their long-term partners likelier to say yes when asked, then... It shouldn't all just be her getting fucked. If, I love to say to straight guys, I'll say it to you. If every time you said yes to sex, you, your ass got fucked, you would say yes less often. <laughs> Same for your wives and girlfriends. If every time they say yes to sex, they're going to get fucked, they're going to get penetrated, they're going to say yes less often than they might. If saying yes sometimes meant oral or mutual masturbation or you going down on her while you jerk off. She'll say yes to that. It won't. She's not going to say yes to that if you treat that like it's some tragic second place trophy, some consolation prize that you're reluctantly accepting and not very happy about. But if she says yes to sex and it's just oral and you jack off while you eat her pussy and you're ecstatic about that and excited for that and that's one of the things in the mix with your sex life that you really enjoy doing with each other, she's a lot likelier to say yes. Have you always been a great conversationalist? Because it, it <laughs> you strike me as a, a, like somebody that – I mean, were you that way <clears throat> as a kid? I mean, did you have an easy time talking in your own skin? Because you, you strike me as – like talking with you as as pleasant exper- as an experience as I imagined it would be. Oh, thanks. Um, I know I was, I was a really terribly shy kid. E- even today, like my – it's a kind of a – not a running joke, a running annoyance when – 
Terry and I have a dinner party or we have a, you know, we have a Christmas day open house. And every once in a while, Terry notices I'm not around and goes searching through the house to find me. And he'll find me like in a room alone for 20 minutes. Cause I just need to like not be around people. Um, uh, but I grew up in a loud argumentative family. Um, and you know, this is what we did. This was dinner. Uh, you know, I sometimes fight with people on the podcast or I have arguments with people. Um, and then they're shocked that I'm not personally angry at them, that, that it's not personal, that we can have disagreements and throw down. And it, and I, and I, and then I, you know, I have to recall that my family's emotional dynamics around disagreements, um, my, you know, nuclear family, my mom, my dad, they modeled this for us with the four kids was that you could disagree and, and argue your point and hold your ground and, and really, uh, really argue. Uh, passionately and you were still family and yeah, you can disagree personal. without being disagreeable yeah you can, yeah we need more of that in public life i mean i feel like there aren't spaces like that in public life where that's modeled very well yeah well sometimes i don't model it myself <laughs> in public life um there is you know we can argue you know and my friend andrew sullivan i used to argue uh long for a long time about uh single-payer health care, about socialized medicine, and I was for it, he was against it. Um, we weren't arguing about whether I was a human being or not. You know, arguing with people who insist that, uh, you know, gay people are sick and sinful and perverted and twisted um, and ought to be discriminated against for their own good or, like Mike Pence seems to believe, have the gayness electrocuted out of them. Um, arguing with someone who denies your humanity, that's hard not to, to take personally. That's hard not to um, dig in. Uh, and to walk away from or circle back from without uh, without uh, animosity. Because hmm. if what's being yeah. thrown on the table is are you human or not? Yeah. And queer people are subjected to that argument a lot. Are you human or not? Trans people, especially right now, are coming in for the are you human or not conversation uh, or accusation. And that's just not something that the people on the receiving end of should be expected to... Uh, be pleasant about having to defend their humanity yeah, yeah. or yeah. ingratiating. Although that is kind of the queer superpower, which we're often able to have these arguments while being charming and self-effacing and making jokes. Cause if you could, if you could have one superpower, just one, you can't be Superman. You just have one. What would it be? Oh my God. Other than, other than you had, you know, you don't have to trade the, the queer ingratiating one, you, but you, you get another one, a bonus superpower. What would <laughs> uh, Without revealing too much about my own kinks, I guess I'd want to be Spider-Man. But you only can only have one thing, climb on the walls or the spider yeah, the strength, spider or webs, the spider sense. Oh, shooting out oh. your hands. Oh, okay. That would come right. in very handy. Yeah, 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 that would be, yeah. Okay, I get it, I get it, I like it. You'd never so, need to have a sling in a hotel room. You could just make one really quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny because we were in an adult novelty store and there was a swing, like, and I said, the problem with a thing like this is if your family or friends come and, and you're th th the first time they're touring the house, even though you have this tucked away, they see the hook and you can't explain it. And the guy goes, sure you can. You get a fern and hang that. Yeah, that's what I was told actually <laughs> once by someone. That's, that's, that's Why do you have four ferns hanging over your bed? <laughs> well, mom, I just like the oxygen in the bedroom. Or you could be like, you know, my first, my German boyfriend, the, the guy we mentioned earlier, who had uh, hooks in the ceiling in his bedroom. Uh, for things like slings and uh, things like American boys he thought were Jews. American boys he thought were Jews. That's a musical. American boys he thought were Jews. And his friends and family came over, and if they asked, he would tell them. That's bold. 
That is bold. Like, uh, you like, know, you, if like, your mom comes like. over and sees the hooks over your thing, you say, well, we have a sex sling because it's fun. It's fun to get off the mattress and be flat on your back in a new and different way to keep things interesting. <laughs> Any other questions, mom? <laughs> I promise you, your mother will never ask you another question about a hook in your ceiling or anything else she spots. Well, out of those say there's order. some things mothers shouldn't have to know. <laughs> have a right not to know. But that means there's some questions mothers should not ask. ask yeah, that was true. also one of my mother's things. She didn't ask questions that she didn't that she knew she might not want to hear the answer. <laughs> so we're in a weird moment in political culture and life. I mean, just the election, and I'm not even just talking about Donald Trump, just even the primaries and everything. It, it, it's a, a strange moment. Do you, like, we're, how do you feel about American public and political life right now? Does it, does it make you anxious? Do you think this is just a season and it'll blow over? Or do you think? I'm completely apoplectic. I'm terrified. Uh, you know, we're a hundred days into the Trump misadministration. Um, you know, I, I'm selling this ITMFA gear. I've raised $100,000 for Planned Parenthood, um, ACLU, and the International Refugee Assistance Project. Just selling uh, hats and T-shirts that say ITMFA on them. ITMFA is a variation on DTMFA, which is an acronym I use in my column a lot that stands for Dump the Motherfucker Already. Yeah, yeah I love that. Just my advice to people who are in shitty relationships and they know it and they write to me and like, you know what to do. Dump the Motherfucker Already. ITMFA, of course, stands for Impeach the Motherfucker Already. Uh, and people say... You know, what if we impeach Trump and it's President Pence and that's going to be worse? It's like, no, it's not going to be worse because Pence oscillates in a predictable band of right wing Republican awfulness, but a predictable band of awfulness. What's unnerving about Trump is that he seems to be, he seems not all there. He seems insane. You don't know what the fuck he's going to do. It's terrifying in a way that the George W. Bush misadministration wasn't terrifying. There's existential dread. That we're all suffering every second of every day, you know, who doesn't wake up now and like look, pick up their phone and look at Twitter to make sure that we're not at war with Nebraska <laughs> or Australia or Canada or Mexico or North Korea. And, do you, you think know, Kim Jong? Do you think Kim Jong Un is sitting there going, "Shit, this motherfucker really is crazy"? <laughs> <laughs> Takes one to know one. Um, you know, that was the Nixon uh, madman theory of foreign diplomacy, like make the world afraid of the American president. He might, he's capable of doing anything. Um, and it didn't work. Uh, hmm. We need sane leadership and we need to not undermine NATO. We need to not smile on dictators like Sisi and we need to not encourage emerging dictators like Erdogan in Turkey. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's terrifying. There is no there there. Uh, at the heart of uh, the so uh, you know at the center of Donald Trump, and just not knowing is scary. And you yeah. know we're on the verge of this vote here today on stripping tens of millions of Americans of their health care and destroying our health care system. Dan, the the pro life party, ladies and gentlemen, they want your kid to die of cancer. Hmm. Yeah, J- uh, the Jimmy Kimmel's plea the other night on late night television was incredibly. Dan, I just got a message from Jesse, who's the consummate. Uh, assistant now you don't like him now because he's telling you no, i do i do phone. you spent more than enough time with him. you gotta go and it's um a pleasure and i the pleasure has been all mine i mean it's just really thank you so much it was a thrill talking to you you have a much nicer podcasting studio than i do this is the, and you're the only a couple show, shows in thanks for listening to give and take if you liked what you heard please do a couple things for me they are so helpful if you do them Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. 
spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And please, please do check out Savage Lovecast, Dan's podcast, and read everything he writes. Listen to everything he says. He's a great guy. And until next time, fare thee well. <laughs> <laughs>